Good morning. Glad you're here to worship with us today. We're toward the end of a message series we're calling Folly at Work. Are you really getting what you want? The reason we called it that is we're looking at how when you set goals and begin to work toward those goals as a team with other people, either in family life, at work, here in church life, whatever it is, folly begins to show up, foolish strategies. I don't know about you, but I've been motivated to change when I feel pain. When when I'm when I was in school, it's been a while, uh, but we'll we'll go to college. Graduate school, I had a better track record, but college, basically, I changed my native strategy when I got a test score that was going to thwart my goal of getting out at some point in the future. My goal in college was to get out on time, and whenever I sensed there was a problem with that goal, I changed my habits. That's what I did. And when I took a job, I found out that I've got to be me. You ever heard that song, the old song, I've got to be me? That's not a good theme song for a job. Because, you know, I I got in my first couple jobs and, and even this job, and I realized, you know, there's some things about me that need to shift if I'm going to actually move forward and make the progress that I need to make here. I've got to change. I can't stay the same. Got married and realized that this was not going to be very enjoyable if I continued the way I'd been going. So I need to make some changes. Same thing in parenting. I, I My goal was to raise kids that could stand on their own two feet before God. And I watched some of the things that I did just that came out naturally in the way that I related to them would exasperate them. I could see it on their faces. They'd, it would frustrate them. So, wow, if I'm going to have the outcome that I really want here, I've got to change. I've got to shift some things. I cannot stay the same. And so life's sort of like a steeplechase, an equestrian. I'm from a blue-collar background. I'm not really into steeplechases. seen them on TV. But... Uh, you know, life can be like a steeplechase, and, you know, there's the brick wall, there's the, the the fence, there's the water hazards, and as you move through life, you tend to run in, you can run into the brick wall, just keep hitting it, and the pain from that, God wants to use that. God God wants to use that to help us begin to change some things about the way we see life and about the way we approach life. That's what we're looking at in dealing with these these follies and foolish strategies, when you come to Christ, what God wants is He wants you to turn from your foolishness and begin to walk toward Him, and He wants to build wisdom in you. Look at this verse in Colossians that describes what should be going on in church life. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, so that we may present every man mature in Christ. This is the goal. We're to grow more and more mature in our relationship to Christ and in the way that we handle life. Wisdom provides the backdrop for what it means to follow Christ. So if you're, if you're here and you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, what God's going to want to do when you commit your life to Him, He's going to want to help you begin to grow in wisdom to understand how, how life works. This is, this is, very important thing that underlies our walk with the Lord, this pursuit of wisdom, this search for it. We looked at a couple of fools last week that bring frustration, pretty common fools. This week, we're going to look at three fools that bring destruction. The first one self-destructs. The second one brings division in groups particularly, and the third one just destroys. And so we're going to dig into these foolish strategies and we're going to try to pull out of them maybe some things that we can identify in ourselves that we can begin to to change as God gives us the power to do so. The first fool is the fun way fool or the sackle. In the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, it would be the sackle fool. This grows out of the folly. We looked at three follies a couple weeks ago. This grows out of the folly of Veleth. I want what I want. The sackle, their attitude toward life is they're focused on desire. 
They see what they want. They see what they desire, alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, whatever it is, and they just go for it. They ignore the consequences. They just dive right into whatever the party is. They go for it. They're, they're very stupid. The most stupid of the fools, the sackle. Um, their characteristics are they're impulsive, they're irresponsible, and deprived. They block out the rest of the world and the consequences for their actions, and they just do what they want. There's this compulsion to do that. Uh, if they do drugs, they do drugs and alcohol, and there's pain while they do it. There's some problems, but then the consequences destroy their lives like a tornado. They just come crashing in on them, and their world and everybody around them hurt because of what they've done. These folks rarely have money. They are deprived. Many homeless people struggle with this, this pattern of foolishness. The key tool that they use for dealing with life in line with this strategy is denial. Jeremiah 5.21 says, Hear this, you foolish, you sackalish, and senseless people who have eyes but do not see and have ears but do not hear. They don't listen. They aren't paying attention. They don't care. They just want to do what they want, and they dive in. King David, who was one of the godly men in the Old Testament, actually hit a point where he sackled in in his life. In 2 Samuel 24, you can read about it. It was forbidden for kings, the kings of Israel, to count their fighting men. And they, the reason it was forbidden, the reason God commanded them not to do it, is because the goal in counting them would be to put your faith in them, to put your trust in them and not God. And so David decided one day, that he was going to count his fighting men. Joab, his commander, warned him, what are you thinking? Why are you going to do this? He got the warning, but he didn't listen. He dove right in. He started counting his men. And then he realized at some point that he had done wrong. And he says to God, God, I have sinned before you. I have done this foolish thing. I have sackled before you. There are times when we know what's right, but we just dive in and do what we want regardless of the consequences. And there were consequences. You can read about them in Second Samuel 24. The character on the station, we've been pulling out of the station the, the characters and looking at them and how they illustrate these things. Greg was the sackle, the fun way fool. We're going to look at some of his characteristics now in this clip. A jar of honey from Mertz's Honey House, right here in the city. Ooh, that's good honey. Greg is addicted to gambling. Is gambling a problem for me? Define problem. Have I lost money? Yeah. Have I won money? A couple of times. And it felt awesome, baby. <laughs> it's great. This fool is focused on desire. It's all about the fun way for this fool who is focused on the moment. Most often, they ruin their lives because they're impulsive and irresponsible. Nothing? Just thought we'd share. <laughs> yeah, hit it, hit it, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check it out. I get work done. People don't always see it. People don't always appreciate it. But there's a different drum out there, and I'm marching to the beat of it. The only reason Greg has a job at the station is that his father is a well-known broadcaster. Greg's father is one of the best sportscasters in state history. Now Greg works here. End of story. Many homeless people have this strategy and they must go without the basic necessities because their addictions are out of control. They cave in to blind desire over and over again, and since they live in denial, they keep paying the price and the consequences of their choices. These fools are beaten up by life and consistently disappoint the people who love them and depend on them, although people learn not to count on them after a while. A dolphin possum. Our culture and what... I just don't know why you don't take anything seriously. Oh, I'm dead serious. Does this look like I'm not serious? Candace, 
That hurts. They talk a big talk, but they don't walk it. If we could take a glimpse into Greg's personal life, we would find that he is teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and has a problem with drugs or alcohol. I bet 17 and a half to 1 that I will have the most ideas by 5 p.m. Hey, bet any money on the game this weekend? I don't bet. I bet if you had the right odds, you would. Not to mention, you know, I had seven heated games of Texas Hold'em on seven different websites for real money. Greg's fun to laugh at or to hang out with possibly, but if you ever want to get anything done, you don't want him on your team. You really don't. The approach to life of the Funway Fool is basically blind desire. They lock onto something they want, and they will not listen to anyone else. It doesn't matter. Everything goes away as they focus on their desire. They're impulsive and reckless in the way they go at things. <clears throat> They're blind to the consequences. They, they don't want to hear about it. They're beaten up by life. If the boss keeps throwing your work in the trash can, you're going to probably lose your job pretty soon. And the, so these folks tend to lose their jobs and live on the street. They talk without walk. They tend to be religious. They can talk a good talk, but they don't stay focused long enough to walk the walk. If you struggle with this tendency, the way you change is you become a good a person of good judgment and you be you choose responsibility. You become a person of good judgment and be responsible. It's what God wants. When when you come to the Lord and when you walk with God, what He wants you to keep doing is as He shows you things, He wants you to identify the folly, the foolishness. Scripture calls it sin. You identify the sin and He wants you to keep repenting. You repent of it. You repent of it once in a in in one big yes to God, you say, "Okay, God, I'm I'm not going to go my way. I want to live life your way. I'm going to turn around and go your way." So what you're saying is, I'm going to stop doing some things, but I'm also going to replace them with the right things. That's what God wants to do. And as you follow God, you can't you tend to find yourself you continue to wander. And as you find yourself off track, confess it, admit it, stop, and replace it. So if you want to replace sackling with the right stuff, you, you learn good judgment and you choose to be responsible. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. This is what God does. He takes up residence in your heart when you commit to Him, and He gives you a new heart. He puts His spirit in you, and He wants to motivate you toward these things. He gives you the power you need the motivation. You need the help. You need to do it. And as you choose to cooperate with him, he begins to build these things in. That word self-discipline in that passage means it has to do with focusing your mind, being able to not to, to, to take away distractions and to be able to focus on what really matters in life. That, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. The next fool is the glory way fool or the halal fool. It grows out of the folly we talked about a while back, halela, which means to lift yourself up, to praise yourself, to exalt yourself. It's related to hallelujah. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. Halela means praise yourself. The attitude of this fool is that they are very arrogant. They demand more than is due them. Now, there are two tracks this folly takes, this foolish strategy takes. Some want the limelight and center stage. Others want power and authority. So it takes on two different tracks, kind of, two different manifestations. In full bloom, these guys are mafia godfathers, like Al Capone or John Gotti. I don't know if you, ever, you remember John Gotti coming down, the dapper Don. Um, just real flashy. He's one of the, the godfathers. The characteristics of this fool are they are self-promoting. Um, everybody has a brag sheet, but they put their brag sheet on the wall. Everybody needs to know about it. They are boastful, and they're scheming. 
They plot to undercut others to get what they want. Their key tool is pushing us. Look at Psalm 75. It says, to the arrogant, I say, boast no more. To the arrogant, to the halal, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. The horns represent power in this, in this situation, like the horns of a bull that push their victim around or impale their victim, but they push them out of the way. This is how halals are. When they come into the room, everybody sort of scatters. They divide the room in half. When they come through, people get out of the way. Scripture goes on, Do not lift up your horns against heaven. Do not speak with an outstretched neck. And here's the truth. No one from the east or the west or the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. The character on the station that was an example of this folly, this foolish pattern, is uh, Candace. We're going to look at some scenes with her. And in case there's any doubt, I think Candace is the winner of this competition. Candace doesn't hesitate to mention her awards and ability in the workplace. As you see in this episode, she is haughty and arrogant. Worry about yourself. I'm not the one with three plaques on the wall for making up trash can basketball games. Hey, how's it going? Fine. I just don't know how much longer I can take being completely unchallenged. This fool is pushy, as you can see in her power play. She asked the big boss for the inside track to winning the competition. She is bold in her attempt to undermine the leadership over her. I just need to know what mascot or logo you'd like to see. I'm good at what I do. If Jim Davies at corporate is a shot caller, then why would I talk with Ted? It's a waste of time. Now my big decision is where I'm going to spend my two-week vacation. Key characteristics of the Glory Way Fool is that they are self-promoting, boastful, and schemers. The Halal wants recognition and will scheme and take any shortcut available to gain leadership, power, and glory. They push their way to glory any way they can. The tactics of this fool create division in groups. They do not play well with others unless you are willing to do their bidding. Candace is on my team. You wish. I'm working alone. I'm taking this competition seriously, and I always like to look my best, unlike most people. Excuse me? Candace, hey, these ideas are wonderful. I'm just going to take two of them. You're what? Have you lost your mind? It is not unusual for this fool to use lies, threats, or violence to get to the top. Self-praise and a boldness to exalt themselves above the group is common in their approach to life. Candace, Jim from corporate, doesn't like my employees calling him. I've got the internet, and I know how to use it, unlike most people around here. Just a lot of fun to hang out with her. Their approach to life, the, the glory way fool, they praise and exalt themselves. This really should come from God. We saw that in Psalm 75. They take shortcuts to leadership, power, and glory. They're pushy. They're haughty. They are deserving and others are not. They look down their nose at the people around them. They're glory-grabbing. They take credit. They tend to take credit for others' work. They create a posse who will help them climb. They don't have a, she want to hang out. She want Jason's help because he really wouldn't be much help. They drive division in groups, in church life, in family, in work situations. They're they're divisive. They undermine the leadership over them, and they're willing to use lies, threats, or violence, whatever it takes. This forms the basis for the criminal personality. How to change if you struggle with this? Learn to serve with humility and exalt others. Replace that strategy to put yourself above others with true humility. Mark 10, 42-45 says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The last fool is the predatory way fool. Nabal is the Hebrew word. Very, very dangerous people. Their attitude, basic attitude, is mercilessness. They are merciless in the way they approach people and life. Their characteristics are, first of all, they're atheistic. And since there is no God, there are no limits. There, There is a verse in the psalm, in one of the psalms, that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's the Nabal, the Nabal fool. Says in his heart there is no God. Now, not all atheists are Nabals, but all Nabals are atheists. They've, they've completely left God out of the picture. They don't think he exists. And they're ruthless. Since God doesn't exist, I only have to get past people. Does it really matter? They take joy in others' pain. If they can get their way without causing pain, they will devise a way to get their, get what they want and cause pain. They don't choose the option of, of just win-win. They go for win-win-lose every time. Their key tool is pretense. That's the key tool they use in pulling off this strategy in life. They pretend to be someone else so they can get close enough to hurt you. You see this in people like Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, the just notorious uh, killers. BTK killer. I don't. He was the most recent of that. Those three. Um, but on the news, you found out the BTK, BTK killer was uh, one of the leaders in his church. <clears throat> and they tend to be. They many times they're they they can well the balls enter religious professions at times. Look at Isaiah thirty two five through six. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. They have this ability to be well-liked because of their pretense. They enter religious professions, as I said. They're false prophets. Look at verse 6. For the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The reactive way fool, the glory way fool, they might give you a drink of water if you needed it. This guy won't. You're just going to suffer. They prefer to watch you suffer. Here's a video clip. Brett is the character on the station that represents this foolish strategy. And so here are some, some scenes from him in this video clip. Hey, how's it going? Brett has the characteristics of a predator. He represents the predatory way fool. You can see some of his strategy in this episode. The key tool of this fool is pretense. Outwardly, he seems pretty nice. This is the way Nabal fools are. Outwardly, they seem nice, but inwardly, they are plotting evil. If I were to count on my fingers how many people in this office I like and would voluntarily spend one minute of time with, I could have no fingers on either hand and be able to count them easily. Brett is two-faced and willing to do some things to make Rebecca happy while setting her up to have a serious catfight with Candace and takes joy in their pain. I just want to let you know that Candace is uh, willing to lend her ideas to help people who are stuck. Really? Yeah, they're right on her desk. I can't just take them off her desk. No, the ones on the top, you can't. She went to lunch and she said uh, the, the ones on the keyboard are available to the office. Hmm. Well, what a nice gesture. Excuse me? Candace, hey, these ideas are wonderful. I'm just going to take two of them. You're what? Have you lost your mind? Well, no. Uh, Brett said that we could come and take him. We've got a cat fight out there, and Rebecca is trying to blame something on me. I think the stress of the competition is getting to the girls. No, I thought, I thought that she was sharing. Oh. Just when you decide to trust these fools, they will hurt you. If you give this fool a choice between win-win and win-lose, they will choose win-lose every time. The best thing about today was that no one really won. 
the only thing that would have made it better is if I had won and everyone else had been humiliated and fired. I can keep hoping for next time, though. They are very ruthless and merciless. The worst of these fools are serial killers and sexual predators. We can see possible seeds of these tendencies in Brett during this episode, and it wouldn't be surprising to see him on the front page of the paper after being arrested for a series of violent crimes against others. On the show Survivor, there's only one winner. I really like that. I look at this office like it's Survivor. I create allies as needed, and if they no longer benefit me, goodbye. <laughs> You want to hang out with Brett when there are a lot of people around in a very well-lit room. You just don't want to go home with him. Hang out with him. Here's the approach to life, other than the ball or the, the predatory way. They're two-faced. Brett seems like a nice guy. He's doing all these errands. He's, he's acting, acting the part. Very intensely selfish and stingy. Very harsh verbally. They're cruel. He enjoyed the cat fight. He watched. He, he just got a kick out of the conflict. They're inwardly plotting evil. These folks tend to spread error about the God of the Bible. We got that. Saw that in that passage in Isaiah. They squirm out of debts. They promise things and they don't come through. They get into debt and they squirm out of them. They may be in the religious profession. Newscasters seem amazed at this. I remember when the BTK killer story came out. They were amazed that he was a high-up leader in his church, his congregation. The Bible says this is how it is. You have to watch out for this. you got to watch these guys. These people prey on the sackle because sackles are stupid. They're not paying attention. They don't watch the consequences. They aren't being wise in the way they go at life. They prefer win-lose. Be wise. These characters are out there. You have to watch it. If you want to change this tendency, the, the folly that this flows out of is raw, this tendency toward harm. I'm going to harm you to get what, what I want. I, I don't really, may or may not want to harm you. These guys want to harm you. They want to hurt you. They take joy in that. So how to change is to become a compassionate giver, to completely turn around and be compassionate and give yourself away. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We've talked about five foolish strategies for life. And we've talked about them, we've looked at them, and the reason God put these in Scripture is for us to be able to identify some things that we can turn from and begin to walk toward wisdom. When you commit your life to Christ, God promises a new heart, and He wants to, to take up residence in you and help you begin to change and grow. In fact, if you're doing the steeplechase by yourself, he wants to he wants to provide what you need, give you a horse, and he wants to live inside you and help you as you as you go through the course. You're going to face obstacles, you're going to fall off the horse, you're going to struggle, you're, there's still going to be pain, but he wants to use the pain to help you learn how to cooperate with him, which is what it takes to change. One of the key things to change if you've identified some things in yourself that need to change is to learn to cooperate with the Lord. One of the basic keys. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, or 16 and 25 say, So I say, live by the Spirit. We have the Spirit in us, those who've committed our lives to Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We're to live by the Spirit so you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And then 25 says, since we, live in, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So we're to keep it sort of like, life can be like a dance where we need to learn to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. When you catch yourself in default mode, you know, you're going through life, you're struggling, there's some, some things going on that are just weighing on you, and you default to one of these foolish strategies. Admit it. That's what confession is. 
Scripture says if you confess your sins, you're forgiven your sins. They're wiped out. They're, you're, clean, you're cleansed from them. So admit your sin and then surrender to the Lord's leadership again. God, help me to get past myself here. Help me to, to overcome this in the way that I'm relating to people. Second key is to set your heart on pleasing God. Ecclesiastes 2.26 says, To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. These five foolish strategies undermine our, our, our happiness. We set our goals to get what we want because we think that in getting what we want, we're actually going to find happiness or satisfaction. These strategies undermine that happiness, that real progress and fulfillment that God wants us to experience. Find out in this passage that happiness is a gift that comes along the way on the journey. It's a gift from God that He gives. As you set your heart to do life the way that He wants, you trust Him rather than using your own strategy to get your way, to accomplish your goal, to be able to live life in a certain way and to, to see things come through the way you want. Rather than doing your own strategy, you stop that and you let God lead you. You do life His way and you begin to follow Him. Happiness is a gift that He gives to those who please Him. We're going to look more at that uh, beginning on April 22nd. We're going to look at the journey of lasting success and we're going to talk about the first few steps in wisdom, how to walk wisely. It helps, though, to see the folly and the foolishness so that we can begin to walk toward God in wisdom and find the happiness that He wants to give. He really wants to give us the best kind of life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for the truth that we find in Your Word that really sets us free from these tendencies. You, God, set us free. Good morning. Glad you're here, and I'm personally grateful for the crew that allows us to be this mobile, to get set up in a new place, to be able to worship here and dig into the Word together. It's a good thing. The gal, gal's name was Jane, that Kelly was talking to here. She felt the pressure of some external, external demands from different people, her boyfriend, her parents, and she was trying to appease them. That was the approach she took to life. This, this can be a real chore, sort of like paying your taxes or like doing your taxes. I, I was late on mine this year, later than normal, getting mine done. Well, I'm not late yet. I'm finished. But I was later than I like to be. But doing your taxes is, is and can be a real chore. Relationships sometimes can feel like you're paying your dues, you're paying your taxes, you're trying to make everyone around you happy. You're pulled in different directions. I've been there. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where you feel pulled apart? One thing that has really helped me since I began to follow Christ is a freedom that comes. As I catch myself falling back into my tendency, I have this native tendency to try to make people happy. That's my bent. Um, but since I've been following the Lord, He's really helped me to deal with this and, and I more and more the right way. I mean, I still struggle with it, but as I catch myself in that mode, then he can give me the freedom from it if I'll go to him for the help. We're going to look at Paul today. Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, and we're going to look at his life, and we're going to find out how he began. He started out trying to appease God, and after he met Christ, there was a major shift in his perspective as he began to understand what God really wanted from him. We find out, first of all, from Paul that knowing Christ is the one priority that brings true freedom. It's about knowing him, having a relationship with him. Philippians 3, 8 through 9 says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, by whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We're going to look at some verses right before these in a few moments. But as you dig into Paul's story, you find out how having a relationship with the Lord brings real freedom, sets you free from the tyranny of doing, doing, doing the chore of life and allows you to focus on the things that really matter. Here is Paul's example. We're going to look at how his values changed. How, how did his perspective and everything begin to shift? If you look at Acts, Acts 7, 57 through 8, 3, you get a little snapshot of Paul before he committed his life to Christ, before knowing Christ. And the context of this passage, the, you, on your listening guide, there's that whole passage listed. I'm going, only going to read a couple of verses. But in Acts 6 and 7, you begin to read about Stephen, who was a gifted young leader in the church, very strong communicator, public speaker, was able to articulate the Christian faith very effectively. And he was a threat to the Jewish leaders of his day who were trying to snuff out this Christian movement. And so Stephen was stoned to death outside of the city after testifying to Christ. And in Acts 6 and 7, you can read later about Stephen and his what was going on at the time. But in chapter 8, verse 1 of chapter 8 of Acts, it says, And Saul was there. This is Paul. His name was changed after he came to Christ. Um, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. It's fascinating, isn't it? This is the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament was vehemently opposed to the Christian movement at the outset, and then he met Christ. Let's look at how he met the Lord. Acts 9, 1 through 6. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there belonging to the way, the Christian movement, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Could you guys scroll the screen for me up here? <clears throat> um, are you having trouble with it? Oh, okay. Um, so Jesus, here's what happened. Paul is on the Damascus Road. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody make re reference to a Damascus Road experience. This is where that phrase comes from. I grew up in, in a church where they talked about, you know, having a Damascus Road experience, a real dramatic conversion from going your own way and turning around to go the Lord's way. Um, but what, what happened here is Paul was about doing his business. He was going after squashing this Christian movement, and Jesus came out to meet him on the road. Many times we think that if we're if we're if our starting point is the human being, a person, then we tend to think of ourselves as reaching out to God or reaching up to God. In reality, what's happening is God is reaching out to us and reaching down to us. In fact, He is pursuing us and coming after us. I'd like to share a video clip that describes. C.S. Lewis conversion as well. We've seen, um, we've seen, or we've read about Paul's coming to Christ. And 
in this clip, this is a PBS special, and it's, it's about C.S. Lewis's life and writings. And what you have on the clip, just to explain it so you'll be able to track with it, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a dramatic interpretation of C.S. Lewis and his description of what he went through. You have a person playing him, acting out uh, certain scenes, and then you have experts. C.S. Lewis was such a profound thinker and writer that there are men who study his writings and his life to try to gain all the wisdom that can be gained from it. And so you have flashes of C.S. Lewis describing how he came to Christ, and then you have expert thinkers. It breaks away to them, and they're talking about what was going on, what he believed. But what, what's happening in this clip is he's beginning to describe, he, he was an atheist, so it's much like Paul. Paul. Well, Paul wasn't an atheist, but Paul was very much against the Christian church and vehemently opposed to it. Obviously, he wasn't an atheist. He was a very religious man trying to follow God and in the way that he understood he needed to. C.S. Lewis, however, was an atheist. And he said he began to be surprised because as he read poetry, as he read the, the books that he was reading, he wasn't drawn to the writings of atheists. He was beginning to be drawn to the writings of Christians. And then he began to think about it. He said, you know, my best friends, my best colleagues, he was a professor at a college. He said, my colleagues, the ones that I'm drawn to are not the atheists, but they're the believers. And he began to get confused at how he was. He kept being drawn to Christian people, to, to the thinkers and the writers, and the friends around him that he began to connect with were, were the believers. And then he, on this clip, what you're going to see is he begins to read a passage from Hippolytus of Euripides, who was a Greek writer, and the writing is from the perspective of a, a Greek person, with the Greek gods, but Lewis begins to describe what was going on in his heart at the time up to the point where he committed his life to Christ. I'd like to, to watch this and then talk about it. I was suddenly compelled to read the Hippolytus of Euripides. Oh God, bring me to the sea's end, to the Hesperides, sisters of evening who sing alone in their islands where the golden apples grow. And the Lord of Oceans guards the way from all who would sail into their night-blue harbors. Let me escape to the rim of the world where the tremendous firmament meets the earth and Atlas holds the universe in his palms. For there, in the palace of Zeus, wells of ambrosia pour through the chambers, while the sacred earth lavishes life, and time adds his years only to heaven's happiness. I was off once more into the land of longing, my heart at once broken and exalted as it had never been since the old days. I was overwhelmed. I called it joy. When Lewis talks about joy, he talks about something that he labels the central theme of his whole life. But what he means by joy is not the satisfaction of a desire, but a desire that is more desirable than any satisfaction. There was no doubt joy was a desire. But the desire is turned not to itself, but to an object. I had been wrong in supposing that I desired for joy itself. All the value lay in that of which joy was the desiring, the naked other, unknown, undefined, desired. I did not yet ask, who is desired? The very experience of joy that Lewis had was uh, an arrow that led to the target of belief in God. 
Lewis argued innate deep desires do not exist unless they correspond to something that can satisfy them. If there is hunger, there is food. If there is sexual desire, there is sex. If there is curiosity, there is knowledge. So if there is the desire for this thing that is beyond this world, there must be something beyond this world. Lewis was still resisting, but growing tired from the struggle. The fox had now been dislodged from the wood and was running in the open, bedraggled and weary, the hounds barely a field behind. The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears to be a moment of wholly free choice. I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus. Without words, and almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay. I felt myself being given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I chose to open. I felt as if I were a man of snow, at long last beginning to melt. Drip, drip. And presently, trickle, trickle. I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, <laughs> mad wish, to call my soul my own. I had been far more anxious to avoid suffering than to achieve delight. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. Total surrender. The absolute leap in the dark were demanded. I gave in and admitted that God was God. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I wanted to show that because we tend to think of our pursuit of God. Religion is man, men and women, trying to find God, trying to appease him, trying to do what they can to bring things together. What is actually happening is God is pursuing people. He wants us to have a relationship with him. I can identify with this. C.S. Lewis referred to, the, to God in one point as the hound of heaven. And I remember I grew up in a church, and in our church, when you decided to follow Christ, when you decided to have a relationship with him, you walked down the aisle and told the pastor who was waiting after the message during a song. And I, at, at my age, I was preteen, I remember this sense that God, it was between, right now, all the stuff I'd learned in Bible classes growing up, everything that I had thought as I dug into the scriptures, it wasn't about myself and my parents, it wasn't about myself and my friends, it was, a, it was between God and I. And it was about my surrender to him and deciding to go his way. And I remember, I don't remember a lot usually, but I remember gripping the pew in front of me, white-knuckling it, trying to hold on so I did not have to let go and give my life to God. But it, God kept pursuing me, kept pursuing me, and I finally let go and committed my life to follow Christ. Paul explains, after meeting Christ, see, the Lord pursued Paul, and everything changed in that meeting. After he came to Christ, he explains in Philippians 3, 4 through 7, his new values. Here's his value statement. It's a major shift from where he was before he met Christ. 
If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What he means by that, if anybody thinks they can earn their way into God's favor, I am the king of the hill in this in this category. He was working with the high priest. He was trying to do their what, what they felt needed to be done with the Christian faith. He was trying to be righteous, to do what the scriptures say about that. He says, I have more reasons than anyone to be confident in the flesh, my own ability to please God. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. We read about that. As for legalistic righteousness, in other words, in keep, as for keeping the rules, the do's and don'ts, the rights and wrongs, faultless. But whatever, to, was, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Everything Paul thought was important faded into the background and actually ended up in the dumpster compared to the surpassing worth of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we read these passages before, but I'll put them on the screen again. Verses 8 and 9, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. See, his, his understanding shifted, and here's how it shifted. It's not about me doing and doing and doing. One guy said that Christianity, he said religion is spelled do, D-O, you do. You do what's right, you don't do what's wrong, you, you live out the law. Christianity is spelled done, D-O-N-E. Lord Jesus has already done it. He's already paid the price for our sin. The law isn't a stairway to heaven after all. What the law is, is it's an x-ray machine to show us where we fall short and to reveal to us <coughs> excuse me, that we need God. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is so grateful that he has righteousness in him that there's a major shift. And his shift shows that the Bible is a guidebook, not a rule book. It turns out it's a, it's a guide. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. To me, a rule book is drudgery. But a guidebook, I need one of those. I, I need a guidebook. I need someone to guide me through life. Before he came to Christ, for Paul... <clears throat> the scriptures were a set of rules to follow and they, something that you used to prove how right you were with God. But afterwards, he realized it's an owner's manual more than a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a rule book you follow to appease God. It's a guidebook that's written by the guide who knows the way and who wants us to have the best possible life that we can have. You follow it because you have a connection. You have a relationship with God, not to maintain a relationship with God. Hmm. I'm, I'm sorry about this. I'm having trouble. Hmm. I, really, I really like the other place because there's water out front. <laughs> Do you like change? <laughs> I'm dealing with change right now. Sorry. <clears throat> anyway, you follow, bless you. That was my my silent plea for my not so silent plea for water. Anyway, I'm sorry. I hope that didn't distract you. But um, the scriptures are a guidebook for us to follow. You follow it because 
you have a relationship with God, not to maintain it, not out of a fear that you're going to lose your connection with God. Once you commit your life to follow Christ, you have a relationship with Him. Jesus described it this way. I have you in my hand when you commit your life to Christ. God has His hand over mine, and no one can snatch you out of our hand. Nobody can take you out of my hand. Your relationship with Him is secure. This is a letter uh, that Paul wrote to a young protege, Timothy. And it's interesting. He said that all Scripture is inspired by God. That means it's God-breathed. He breathed it out. It's not like God took the writings of Paul and Peter and the others in the New Testament and the Old Testament, took their writings, what they wrote, and then breathed into it and inspired it. But no, these the writers were writing the very words of God. Paul claimed in 1 Corinthians 14 that his, his words were Scripture. So it's important if we're going to have a relationship with God that we understand his words. And, and I would like to just give you an aside here on how to check the credibility of the Bible. We're reading about Paul's life and his story, and we're, we're digging into some of the things he said and the way that it revolutionized his life. How do you check out the credibility of the Bible? First of all, you research its accuracy. You may have heard that the Bible is full of errors, but really it's very, very accurate. Um, you can verify its accuracy by checking out the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament to the New Testament. 2,000 of 2,500 of those prophecies have been fulfilled. <clears throat> you can look at science. It's interesting how many times people will say that the Scripture is, is inaccurate, it's wrong scientifically, but really it's, 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 it's very accurate. In fact, it's advanced. There's a scripture in Isaiah that was written around 600 B.C. that talks about the circle of the earth. Who, who told them that the earth was a circle? I mean, at that time, people thought it was flat until Magellan circled the, the globe in the 1500s. They thought it was flat. Archaeology keeps verifying the truth of the scriptures. I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but the second way you check the, the credibility of the Scripture is to realize its adequacy. And what I mean by that is dig into it and find out if it's an owner's manual that will really help you through life. As, as you get in, God will speak to you personally through it. As, as you've been coming here, I would guess that as we dig into Scripture, God speaks to you. And the reason is because Hebrews 4.12 says that the Bible is alive. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword because it's the very Word of God. As you get into Scripture and begin to read it, it reads you. And, and God begins to speak. So here's how it works. This is the way to real freedom. Jesus told us this. Freedom flows when I trust Jesus enough to do his word. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus then said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I have learned that by setting my heart to please God, because he has made me right with him, I find the freedom from the tyranny of trying to appease the people around me. And that allows me to enjoy life. I, God has given me the freedom to relate to him. Not only that is he has pursued me and he has caught me. He has, I have turned to him and established a relationship with him. And because of that relationship... I have the freedom not to have to go through the drudgery of trying to make everybody happy. I have one priority now that brings all of life together and gives me true freedom. How do I know God better? How do I know the Lord? And what will please Him in this situation? That, that frees me up. I'm, I'm not at the whim of the people around me. I, I don't have to try to do what they do. I'm out to do right before God. 
If I'll do right before him, that's the best thing for my family. It's the best thing for my friends and my relationship with them. It's the best thing for, for the people at work, for accomplishing the work that, that I have to do during my week. I, I do what's right before God, not to make things right with him, but because he has already made right, made things right for me. I have the freedom from that tyranny. In a situation where people aren't appreciating me, and, you know, sometimes if you don't sense that they're appreciating, boy, you, you just want to do more to make them happy. I got to do more. I got to do more. I don't have to do that. I set my heart on pleasing God. I set my heart on knowing Him. Father, what is it that you want me to do right here and now? I'm serving Him. I'm setting out to please Him. I'm doing what He asked. In the midst of conflict, when you're pulled apart and you're struggling with, wow, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder why they said that. Oh, you know, I wish that wouldn't have happened. In the midst of that, Lord, you want to use this to help me to know you better. And how do you want me to respond? What's the best way to handle this, Lord? I can set my heart not on pleasing myself, not on pleasing the people around me, not on appeasing them, which may be an impossibility, but I can set my heart on pleasing God, knowing him better and pleasing him. I can go through the pain of humbling myself when I need to to make things right with others because this is what he would want. Not worried about my standing or my, my negotiating position with the person I'm having a conflict with. I know God will take care of me if I do right before him. I pay my taxes with a happy heart because it pleases God. You know, there is scripture that says we're to pay our taxes. We, we give Caesar what's due him. We give the government what we owe. Even my taxes, there's a sense of rightness about doing them. And, and there's a sense of accomplishment because it's right before God. I, I, I live to know him and to make him happy. And he said this is important. So I do that, and, you know, it's not such a drudgery because I'm even doing these for the God I serve, the one who loves me. He loved me enough to hunt me down, to pursue me, to step out of heaven into history and become a person who lived a perfect life, died a death so that I could know what life is all about. That gives me freedom from the tyranny of the things that are going on around me. When, when you're struggling, you feel pulled, like the gal in the skit, felt pulled in all different directions by the pressures, the people that are pulling her apart. When you feel pulled like that, you can go to God and allow Him to meet the needs. Set, set your heart on Him. I read in my, my devotion this morning, I pray and read every morning, and in Psalm 142, I try to read a psalm every day before I dig into some other parts of Scripture. <clears throat> psalm 142, David is running. He has already been anointed as king of Israel. And the problem is Saul didn't recognize that, the, the current king. Saul was the king. David was anointed to be the king in the future. Well, David became a threat to Saul. He chased him. He began to chase him down to take him out, to take out the threat so he could continue as king. David is hiding in a cave, running from Saul, when the Lord has already spoken through a prophet, told him that he was going to be king. You know what he did? He, he, turned, he turned to God, and in Psalm 142.5, he said, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. When, when your life, if you know the Lord, if you know Christ, if you know God through him, when everything seems to be depleted around you, people aren't giving you what you want. They aren't, they aren't serving you. They aren't, re, they aren't acknowledging your effort. They aren't doing what you'd like to do. In fact, you're just trying to make them happy. But they aren't recognizing your effort. You can go to God and say, Lord, you are my portion. You're my refuge. 
You're my portion in the land of living. You're the one who fills me up. You're the one who gives me what I need. You do your best for him. You don't have to appease the people around you. You don't have to even try to appease God. Because what happens when you come to know God and you really begin to understand Him and grow in your knowledge of Him, you're set free from the tyranny of appeasing people. You don't have to appease Him. You don't have to appease the people around you any longer. You can walk freely in the way that you relate and live your life. It could become a real joy as you pursue Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for the truth we find in your word. Thank you for the the freedom that we have in relating to you, God. As we we get into your word, we can realize that it is a... These are words from you that you've given to help us to know how to live life to the full. Thank you for what you've done. And I pray, God, as you've spoken this morning, that you'd give us a real heart to to do uh, what you've laid before us in, in an effort to please you because we know you, because we already have a secure relationship with you, God. Help us to do this in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.